Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Missing Persons Research Hub podcast. On today's episode, episode number one, we have Sin. Sin is a detective with 18 years experience as a police officer in a variety of positions. Sin's experiences include complex criminal investigations, acting as a subject matter expert and lead instructor at the police college, redeveloping best practices, designing emergency management response strategies, and utilizing intelligence-led policing. He is currently interested in police decision-making, knowledge management, design thinking, and using an evidence-based policing approach in order to develop best practices that will directly improve community safety. He is passionate about seeking out insights through meaningful data and is currently researching missing persons as a part of the CANSAB Virtual Scholar Program. Welcome to the episode, Sin. So Sin, could you tell me a little bit about um, your experiences with the field of missing persons? Um, well, my experiences as a police officer, I've been working uh, as a police officer for about, I'd say 18 years now. And um, part of my experiences include um, as a police constable, getting calls for missing people uh, as we all do as police constables and then um, looking for missing persons and that's getting missing persons and then later on as a detective constable investigating uh, ones that had criminality attached to it um, and then uh, as a supervisor overseeing um, missing person searches and such and then uh, and now on a higher level um, uh, looking at uh, um, as part of the research just looking at uh, what are some of the policy implications surrounding missing person and that's with uh, the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing. How did you get involved with research moving from, you know, your policing role to more of a research role? Uh, it was just a volunteer basis. Uh, what happened was um, I was interested. Uh, uh, my former uh, former uh, supervisor was uh, Cam Field. He's a who was the vice president of the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing, and mm-hmm. he recommended it. And I always had um, an inclination toward research, and I always wanted to go back to uh, university to get into criminology and upgrade my degree, but uh, I never did. And um, I've always wanted to understand a little bit more about uh, the research component of it, and uh, I found it super interesting. Nice. What's your favorite part of it so far? I like to understand what happens is it's one thing to be practical when you're uh, out in the field and doing being engrossed in or immersed in the in the topic in this case missing persons but it's another thing altogether to take a step back and look at what are the components of it what's the breakdown of missing persons like um, how how do the components work and what I mean by that is um, missing persons is a very, very diverse category. Mm-hmm. It can encapsulate tons of different things, like um, somebody who's elderly who has Alzheimer's, a youth who runs away, um, someone who gets abducted, kidnapped in the, in the criminal field. All of these all have the same general category, missing person. But um, they, it's a huge range of ways you respond to it and a huge range of um, different components of uh, what makes them what they are. And so uh, when I do research, it gives me, because there's no exigency where I'm just doing it and I don't really, I'm not really thinking about the components of it. 
I can now take a deeper understanding, maybe even like more of a, I guess, a scientific or philosophical thought pattern on what exactly is a missing person? How is it structured? Why do we do the things we do? And what makes one a missing person and another one not a missing person? So is that your focus right now is on looking at the components? Yes. Yeah. So uh, one of the things is uh, being part of CANCEP, uh, I got, uh, I applied and got selected for the um, virtual scholar program. And what that does is uh, it allows me to be paired up with uh, academics and, and um, get involved in research. In this case, the research is missing persons. And what I enjoyed about that was the, I thought the typology would make the most sense because to start off with, because this is the base of everything, right? In, in policing in general, it's one thing to have statistics or data, but the data doesn't matter if it doesn't tell you anything. Right. And so, so the basis of all missing person we should start with, I think, is the typology. Because when you have a proper typology and a typology that makes sense to a police officer, then we break missing persons into categories. And then we can see how some categories react and what are the patterns of some categories and what works best for those categories. And we can't do that until we have categories or else everything's just a big jumble of missing persons. So what, what typologies do you know of that are out there right now in a Canadian context? Uh, whew, there was uh, actually, in terms of a Canadian context, uh, there's almost no research on a typology. Uh, oh, the typologies okay. I, I do know of are all um, um, either from the UK, Australia, some have some US background to it. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that uh, was problematic with these typologies was that um, for a typology to work, there's like two basic components. It has to be comprehensive in that it covers every category that you define as a missing person. Mm -hmm. And it has to have mutual exclusivity in the sense that if you categorize one person as one type of missing person, they can't also be categorized as another missing person simultaneously type of missing person. Mm -hmm. So, for example, like if you say um, runaways is a category of youth, you call all youth uh, who leave their home and you say that's a runaway. Um, well, if that categorizes with, say, a youth who is abducted or who is somehow lured into um, human trafficking, uh, and you've got both categories at the same time, it really is hard to start formulating a principle or a pattern off that because you're going to have some confounding variables in there. Yeah. Does that overlap impact police responses by chance? In general, uh, it makes, I think it makes it difficult to, to really get data and get patterns. In right. general, okay. I mean, uh, the police do, I believe anyways, and I, I mean, I'm biased, but I believe they do a good job with what they have, right? So course, yeah. um, in terms of, uh, it's just, it's a lot of it is experience-based, but there has to be something deeper. We're in a time of evidence-based policing. So, you know, if someone has a better way of doing something, how do we really tell other than be anecdotal? Right. And how do we, uh, how do we test that? And the only way we can do that is through, uh, proper um, research and ex and looking at the uh, data that's set in front of us. 
maybe we could jump right into the project then. So um, I know you had said you're working on this typologies project with the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Could you tell us all a little bit more about that project? Yeah, uh, so what we did was um, we looked at missing persons and we were looking at specific typologies and it starts off at um, examining all the, all the research we could find on typologies and uh, reading all the articles and, and, and breaking down what other people have already done. And uh, without getting into too many of the details, what uh, we noticed is that, I mean, if we could build on something that was already done, that would be the, that would be the easiest. Of course, yeah. Or, or just say, hey, we don't need to do this research because there's one I agree with and it goes. But what we found was that uh, a lot of them that we did find lack mutual exclusivity mm -hmm. or comprehensibility. Mm -hmm. And uh, we found that to be problematic because the other thing is even beyond the mutual exclusivity or the comprehensibility, it has to make sense. It has to hold value or uh, utility to the police officer Absolutely. to break them up in, in the way that they're break, broken up, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of them focused on the intent the motivation of the missing person themselves, which is not um, helpful because the challenge of a missing person investigation for a police officer is it's the absence of evidence. The person is gone. Mm -hmm. Unless you have a witness, um, you really don't have, uh, you don't have a lot. In other cases in policing and in, crim in, in, in a, most cases or a lot of cases in policing, you have something. If there is a shooting, you have uh, you could point to a victim uh, in a homicide. You can point to a victim. Um, then you start going through everything like cameras, surveillance, DNA, such such as that. But with a missing person, you're not even sure if the person's missing. And so it's uh, it could get very very convoluted, very complex. Uh, and the other challenge is, let's say we we got it after the fact, right? Um, so then you have someone you found them missing. It's what about people who take or alcohol or drugs is a factor in their going missing, right? So then how do you tell the person's intent in that way? Um, what if they have mental health? What if they're suffering emotional trauma? And these are a lot of factors that come into play with missing persons, um, especially missing persons who uh, leave because of a combination of alcohol, drugs, uh, maybe a suicidal tendency. In those cases, um, Where's the intent? Is it intentional? Is it unintentional? Like, how do you categorize uh, intent in that case? Because in most cases in uh, in the criminal law, um, forming intent is like a it could be a long, strenuous process in the court systems. How do you get a get someone to codify that very quickly? So that's that's the challenge I find with looking purely at uh, a person's motivation. Yeah. So we thought, okay, let's go to a drawing board. And what if we looked at something else that looked like intent? And it, and why don't we look at instead of what they were thinking, what what did they actually do, and what oh. what are the circumstances of who they are, and what they did? And so, were you looking at that from like missing persons data or media reports? Where was that coming from? Um, well, first we started with. Uh, just talking about uh, experiences of police officers, so like a, like a thematic analysis on, okay, what what do how do um, just having more more anecdotal than anything to have a starting point to right. divvy this up, 
And so we looked at, okay, so what are the main, the thing that I would find most useful as a police officer is risk. Because the thing with missing persons is it's always going to be risk. How many, how much resources can we put into looking for a missing person? And what is the risk and what is the prioritization that should be given to a missing person? So the area that uh, I thought would be best to look at is uh, across two dimensions that uh, come out when you look at risk. You look at, um, first of all, to be missing, you have to, we thought, okay, at the very basics to be missing, you have to be, you have to have a social network, number one. Okay. Uh, You have to disconnected such that if that somebody from the social network has to notice you're missing and then even that's not enough to be no uh, be called missing that person has to be concerned enough to call authorities and say that you're missing and if you don't qualify in those categories you, you can't you're not missing yeah that's so interesting because as a researcher in this field myself i've ran into that issue where for the quote-unquote invisible groups like let's say homeless missing persons they're really only reported missing when they interact with institutions like social services, hospitals and stuff like that. So it's the invisible number or the dark figure of missing persons that we don't really capture because it requires that social connection that you're bringing up and it requires someone to notice that they're gone and be worried enough to bring that forward to the, to the police force that they're reporting to. Yeah. And I mean, it's in the definition of most places missing person that, they have to um, be reported to be an actual missing person. So like you said, their only way to uh, somebody who's homeless, who has is uh, broken a lot of contact with their networks is notice is because they kind of have some kind of informal network that has noticed them and then notice that they're not there anymore. The first risk dimension is how is that person disconnected from their social network? And the only two ways, well, three ways I could see is that they either left in some fashion, they either, their contact is now impeded from, from contacting their social network in some way. So that's the second one, or it's just, you made a mistake. There's, there's actually no uh, disconnect, but you perceived it to be so. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, and then what happens, the second risk dimension is what is the individual person's vulnerability when they're disconnected from their social network? So if you have a five-year-old child, they're not particularly vulnerable by themselves because they have uh, protect, protective factors like their parents or um, w- whatever circumstances that they're in. The minute they get separated from their protective factor, then their vulnerability changes. And so uh, I want to look at that. So people with mental illness, people with uh, cognitive impairment of some kind, uh, for example, Alzheimer's, uh, the homeless, for example, what yeah. happens when they're disconnected from um, their social networks, mm-hmm. people with substance abuse, trauma, and so forth, right? Right. So by looking at those two uh, risk dimensions and then cross-referencing them together, I started by looking at, okay, um, what kind of categories can you find separate within either they left, their contact has been impeded from contacting their social network, and or there's like none. You just made a mistake, which I just categorize as a misunderstanding. So that's, um, you know, one, one, maybe a spouse thinks you're going to come home at a certain time. Uh, you left a message on a piece of paper, but that message wasn't seen. 
So, and so you came home three hours late, but in that three hours, one spouse is going uh, very concerned about the other, right? Mm-hmm. And then they realize it was just a big misunderstanding. But in that time period, that person was reported as missing. So that would be in the misunderstanding category. Okay, makes sense. But then I looked at, okay, what happens when somebody leaves, right? What, what are, so if you look at the disconnection of someone leaving their social network in some way, and I'm not talking about intentional and unintentional, I'm just talking about like the act of leaving, somehow leaving that social network. Um, I, I started looking at the vulnerability groups. And so I started, okay, the highest level of vulnerability is people who require caregivers. Right. And so I just named that a separation, um, just separation category, because if you are a young child, you require a caregiver. If you are um, uh, have Alzheimer's and you are maybe you're in an institution or you're being looked after by your family and such, um, you have a caregiver of some kind. Even if uh, you're hospitalized for whatever reason or you have a mental illness and you're hospitalized. Uh, hospitalized or in an institution, medical institution of some kind. Uh, when you get separated from that institution, your vulnerability goes up because you've lost the protection of that institution and on your own, you have a high level of vulnerability. Absolutely. Yeah, so that, makes sense. that would be at the highest scale. And then, then you start looking at um, another category I call disassociation. And then in that category, um, there's a group that slowly, I notice slowly disassociates contact over a period of time from their social network. Um, and there's increasing large gaps of time between contacts. And in a lot of cases, this is the case with homeless, the homeless oh, okay. population. So over time, you know, you might see the person. It's, it's, not, it's not unexpected for the person not to contact on a regular basis until one day the person has tried many methods and said, I can't get a hold of whoever I was trying to contact, and then the concern begins. Right, so, that's, so that could that, be like any amount of time is passed between that. It's just when the awareness yeah. um, comes forward from their social network, right? That's right. And then the last group is a departure group, right? Uh, this is a person who leaves without providing their whereabouts, even though they possess the means to do so. So commonly, you hear, you hear a term like runaways. person leaves. They, they could tell uh, what the person, what, why they left, but, or where they are now. Now in different cat, in different typologies, um, they've broken down runaways, people who are kicked out of their homes, people who are, um, um, leave on their own and such. But I find that problematic because the circumstances are so intertwined. Yeah. Um, a person who gets kicked out of their home could, you could say they left because they got kicked out, but that same person, a parent who kicks a kid out of their home, might actually be the one to call them missing when they can't get a hold of them after. Absolutely. And in that circumstances, those kids have the ability to tell the parent, I'm here or I'm over here, but they don't. And so it, I just say, all I care about is that functionally they left and they didn't give their whereabouts. For the runaway category, I've seen that a lot in my own work where it's been used as like a catch-all category for any youth that's gone missing, especially youth that go missing several times as well, classified as runaways. And I've Mm -hmm. always wondered about the nuances behind that. Like there's no way that, you know, most youth are running away. Like there's got to be other reasons. So I've always struggled to figure out how to, you know, conceptualize that a little bit better because I've found just like you have, 
that that typology, that runaway typology has not been adequate in explaining it at all. Yeah, and I, I believe this is just the beginning. Right now, uh, you're right, there, we're gonna find some a lot in the departure category, but as time goes on, we can now delve deeper into subcategorizing that departure category. Yeah. Well, I believe that's what's going to happen. We're going to find a lot of um, interesting data over time if if uh, we can get some. Absolutely. I mean, we're all just, I would say Canada is just kind of getting started. Like you said, a lot of the research on missing persons comes from the UK, Australia, um, even the US. And in Canada, we definitely have a history of missingness, but we've not really got the research mm -hmm. backing for it. So it's good that this work is getting started and we're getting somewhere it's it's all that process like you're talking about with evidence-based policing and and um advancing the research state it's 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 got to start somewhere and that's what you're doing with the typologies which is great just for the listeners um so if you could repeat all the typologies maybe as, as a list that'd be great okay so uh departure we just talked about uh disassociation is uh, a gradual dissociation dissociate contact from a social network we got the separation category which is uh, when people who are separated from their caregiver, they're the people who are the most vulnerable because they require a caregiver. And then we talk about the next phases when your contact gets impeded. So we got two, the last two categories is the chance isolation. And that's the one where um, somehow that person can't get back to their social network because they become isolated from it. Unintentionally, it's a chance occurrence. Uh, that could be you're going out on a walk and you have a medical condition or a heart attack. Um, it could be, a, it could be, you could be out, out driving and then, uh, weather conditions make it so that you can't drive anymore or, um, like you're in a, caught in a snow blizzard of some mm -hmm. kind. Very so it, it could be for whatever of the isolation, but then the other one that's more concerning to a lot of people, or maybe not more concerning because both are bad, but <laughs> the one that, uh, has made more in terms of the media is the category I call removal. You've been removed from your social network. That means a per perpetrator has removed someone from their social network and exerted some kind of illegal, physical or psychological control over them. Oh, and like abductions. Yeah, abduction of, of any kind. Uh, it could be uh, a human trafficking case. It could even be a homicide where someone has um, essentially murdered another person, but nobody knows where they are and hidden the body and such. Right. Okay. So, so those are the five categories. Right on. So Sin, what do you, what do you hope to achieve with these typologies? What's the next steps here for you and your research project? Um, well, the next steps is to get approval uh, from, from a, a police service, an anonymized police service that will uh, provide uh, data in terms of their data, in terms of the missing persons. And then um, to, to look through that data to see if do these typologies actually exist beyond beyond those just that anecdotal and if they do exist um what are the patterns that you can start seeing within them it'd be really interesting to see some of the patterns on and seeing similarities or if i look at them if, if i break them up into the typologies are we going to see common patterns start to emerge and then will those patterns start giving us insights into uh how we re how we should respond so it's mm -hmm. like the starting point, the basis of our response. And can we, is there anything we can do to improve our response? 100%. Yeah. It's a starting point for further testing then. Yeah, absolutely. Because the, here's the thing with policing. Um, it's not 
I'm just using this as a as a saying. I mean, because policing isn't a game, but it's a game of inches. In in that it's a high risk field, and in all high risk fields, uh, it's these small things. Like if you're doing a good job, in most cases, if you're saying like eighty um, percent of the time I'm doing a good job, it'd be good. It, everything would be great. But when you're in a high risk field, that's not good enough because the twenty percent could mean people are dying. Yeah. And if that's the case, then uh, you need to take whatever measures to take a good response and make it as good as response as you possibly can make. And Absolutely. and to and missing persons or a lot of high risk things are time sensitive. So are you? It's not only having the right answers; it's having the right answers and and employing them right away. Right, and that's why it's great that you are a police officer yourself because you can apply that in your own environment and then people in in policing will listen to you right so that's why it's great that you're engaging in in this research because you can actually create actionable change within your organization and others well yeah i mean that's that's a goal i hope so someone would listen to me who knows <laughs> but um that's the goal yeah well great and that's who knows great. i might find i might not find out anything but at least uh at least you have to try right yeah but that's a finding in itself like a lot of people when they're in engaging in research they try to get they get stuck on the significant findings or the the big major we need to blow it out of the park findings but sometimes not finding something is is cause for concern or a great research finding itself like if there aren't patterns of missing persons that can formulate typologies then we need to start rethinking risk right we need to start rethinking how we think about missing persons and maybe doing different work and taking a different approach to it so you know like even if you don't find something, that is, in my opinion, maybe a finding in itself. Yeah, the thing about missing persons is that because it's so diverse, we can't use a cookie cutter approach. We can't say, in every missing persons, you have to do this. It's like, it depends, are we talking about, um, in some missing persons cases, investigatively using your skills as a criminal investigator works great. But in other missing persons, um, doing a search and rescue response is actually the, the primary goal, right? Yeah. It's true, like in all of my interviews with police personnel, they all say the same thing, which is it's just so case by case, Lauren. I don't know what to say to you because <laughs> I ask broad questions yeah. like, um, what what would you do in an ideal world to, to make, you know, missing persons work more efficient? And they're like, Lorna, I can't, can't answer that. <laughs> like, it's so case by case, but that's where maybe the typologies will help out because it allows for nuance yes. the categories themselves, right? Yeah. Even with, I, I was thinking, I was talking with um, some people the other day about this, but in an urban environment with lots of high-rise buildings, you, you might say the best practice for a missing person is to search, let's say, I'll just make up a radius, let's say it's uh, 100 meters is mm -hmm. the best practice to search that first, right? But let's say we're downtown Toronto and you have all these high-rises and you're searching the Eden Center. Mm -hmm. Well, you're not just searching 100 meters out. It's not the same as searching like a field or a forest. You're going also up and down six floors of uh, footage, like yeah. uh, square footage, right? So it, that changes everything. Yeah, and much more people and you're running into different barriers. Like in rural areas, yeah. you get things like streams and trees, but in urban areas, you get concrete walls and big fences and bollards and all that so it's a completely different environment yeah. and you know that's where that evidence-based policing component com can come in when you can start testing things in different environments right so it's a uh, definitely a work in progress but 
I mean, wh what's your next steps? Do you think, like, aside from obviously completing your research project, where do you want to, where do you want to go with missing persons work? Um, well, the next steps. I mean, I'm and I'm making assumptions here. But my ne next step is to let's see if these form patterns, and then if it forms some kind of patterns or insight, then follow the insights, follow the research, is what I want to do. I want to see if this has any, if this yields anything, and if it does, then. Uh, let's keep on following it and then let's see if I can get to a best practice, something that could be useful to police officers. Like a, you've heard it, if you speak to enough police officers, people will tell you it's case by case. There's so many factors case by case. But I think what you can achieve is some kind of approach. You can achieve a unified approach to common, common, common uh, type of calls. Absolutely. And if you follow this guideline or a, a unified approach, I think uh, it could be very good for police officers, especially new police officers, because I think you've interviewed mostly experts in their fields. Where it's challenging is those experts aren't the ones on the ground initially. It's the patrol officer who has to know a variety of information at a variety of times, and it's very challenging, and they have a tough job. So. How do you make their jobs a little bit easier or give them the best the best evidence is what I want to do. Absolutely. Well, I love that. So this podcast episode was really focused on Sin's work on the typologies piece that he's working on. But, you know, I think, Sin, we're going to have to have you back on to talk a little bit more from from that policing perspective, because you have lots of great insights. Before I let you go, I just want to, um, you know, put it on the table. Like, is there a quick call to action that you want to put out there? Any final thoughts or comments that you want to let people know about? Um, my only call to action is if you have um, a process, everybody has a, every service, every officer over time has developed something to make their, like, uh, I would say like a, a heuristics or something to make their lives easier and how they respond to something. And if you have something that works, share it, share it with, um, other officers share it, share with me. I'd love to hear about it, um, and uh, or or share it with Lorna at on her website and her uh, missing persons hub. And that way, we can, uh, I believe, by sharing all these things, getting the best practices together and um, and testing it in an evidence-based policing way, then we can uh, all like it. It, uh, it benefits everybody. 100%. I love that. And I fully support that. And I advocate for that as well. Definitely. Um, I will mirror that and say if anyone is interested in getting in contact with Sin, I'll put his information on the website um, on the hub and definitely reach out to me as well. And I can put you in contact with him too. So thank you so much, Sin, for jumping on the, um, the podcast and being the first episode of the Missing Persons Research Hub podcast. And hopefully we'll have you on again sometime soon to talk more. That sounds great. Thank you, Lorna. Take care. Thanks, Sin. Thanks for tuning in to the Missing Persons Research Hub podcast. Until next time. <laughs>